to episode 38 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Bill Bray. Bill is a retired relief pitcher, formerly with the Cincinnati Reds and Washington Nationals. You can give him a follow on Twitter at WP Bray. Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me on. Well, Bill, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. You know, I've, I've played it so long. It's just something that I always loved. Uh, it was my favorite sport from the very beginning. And I, you know, probably started, you know, just my dad and I playing in the front yard playing catch. Did you play other sports all throughout high school as well? Uh, not really. I played baseball. I played a year of volleyball. I ran some track. Uh, but, you know, to be honest, baseball was my true love, and I put everything into that. So when you're pitching in high school, is it at that point where you realize that this is something you could actually do professionally? When do you first realize that being a professional pitcher is something that's within your grasp? Well, I mean, for me personally, it was just something that I, I always dreamed that I would do. I mean, it, I really didn't have too much of a backup plan when it came to playing baseball. Um, I, I was always a good student, but I always wanted to play baseball. I definitely did not have the talent in high school to consider myself a professional prospect. Um, I was left, you know, being left-handed. I threw in the low to mid-80s uh, my senior year in high school. Um, was fortunate enough to go to college and grew three inches, put on 30 pounds, and all of a sudden was thrown in the low 90s. So at, at that point, that's when I really kind of figured out that, you know, this could happen. This, I could be a you know professional prospect, and it just depended on how well I did to see where I went from there. And what were you throwing at that point? In high school, what were you throwing? What types of pitches? And in college, what types of pitches were you throwing? Well, in high school, I threw fastball, curveball, changeup. Once I got to college, my coach, Jim Farr, he didn't really care for my curveball, so he switched it over to a slider, and he taught me my slider, which really ended up being my outfit and my best pitch. You ended up getting drafted in the first round of the 2004 draft by the Montreal Expos. Uh, tell me about what that day was like for you. It was an interesting day. I mean, it was Back at the point, it wasn't on TV. It wasn't a live stream. It was a, it was basically radio over the internet. Um, I was listening to it at my parents' house. It, it was a wonderful day, a very exciting day. I had no idea where I was going to go, and just hearing my name called with the 13th pick by the Expos, it, it was just an incredible feeling. At the same time, it was like this weight had been lifted off me because all throughout my junior year of college, uh, my sophomore summer, all fall you go through this process of being interviewed by agent, you interview agents, you interview um, different kinds of advisors, scouts want to interview, you need to talk to teams. Um, Every time you go out, you throw a bullpen, there's somebody watching, your teammates have expectations, you have expectations for yourself. So, you know, throughout that whole season, the pressure just builds and builds. Every time you go out there, especially as a reliever, you feel like you have to be perfect. And I, I really remember that day for just feeling like, I can breathe again and I can go out and do what I love and I'll relax and, you know, get back to it and not have to worry about how I was performing every second of every day. So at this point, you had gone to college, you excelled in college, obviously, you're a first-round pick. What were your expectations of yourself and what your career would be at that point in your life? I expected great things. Um, I fully expected to go out there and, and move quickly through the organization and uh, to continue pitching well and to improve and to play in the major leagues and stay there for a long time. After the 2004 season, the Expos relocated to Washington. What was that process like for you as a guy who was just drafted by them and in their system? It was it was an interesting process. I mean, it, it didn't really, at that point, it didn't really affect us too much. Um, 
it just basically smoothed through. We were on my MLB the whole time I was there. Um, I think things changed a lot more in 2006 after they they sold the team. But throughout that whole transition period, I think it had a much bigger effect on the major league guys that were playing in D.C., playing in Puerto Rico, moving from Montreal. On, on the minor league level, there wasn't too much transition. It was still the same between training facility, a lot of the same minor league teams. And so I, I don't think that there was a ton of issue with that. So you were traded a few years later. What's it like being part of a trade? Did you feel at that point like the organization had given up on you? Did you feel that way at all? You do feel that way a little bit. It, it's definitely it's, it's a two-sided equation. On one side, you feel like the team had given up on you, maybe that they didn't want you anymore. And then at the same time, your stats be going to a different team because you know they really want you. Um, and at the time, I was going from worst place to first place with going from the Nationals to the Reds and getting to play on my childhood favorite team, the Cincinnati Reds, with King Griffey Jr. and um, a few of the other guys that I played with Senate, with Joey Votto and Jay Bruce. And um, I got to play with Kent Merker and Eddie Guadalajara. I mean, just a lot of guys I really looked up to. I mean, it was an incredible feeling. You're someone that battled injuries throughout your career. We're seeing a record number of Tommy John surgeries happening this year with pitchers. Uh, it's something that you went through, and it's something I think that as media members and fans take for granted. We just hear Tommy John surgery, and we assume that the player's going to come back, in some cases come back better. But I don't know how accurate that is. I mean, I feel like surgery is always a dangerous thing, and there's always a risk that you won't come back at all. You were able to come back from it, but tell me what was going on with your elbow and how you felt throwing before you actually had the surgery? I didn't really have much of an issue with my elbow uh, before my my injury. Um, I Really with the elbow, I had been a little sore for a few days, um, you know, probably just from having pitched and maybe throwing a few too many sliders and a couple of games. And I missed most of spring training with some shoulder issues that year. Uh, so going up to that point, I, I really didn't feel like I had much of an issue with my elbow. And then in that game, I threw a slider and I felt it pop. And, you know, probably not the smartest thing in the world. I got back on the mound. I had two strikes, two outs, and just kind of told myself, all right, I'm not coming out of a game like this. And I threw one more pitch. I don't, I don't remember the pitch. Everything kind of went white. I remember a lot of pain. But the guy popped it up. I walked into the dugout, grabbed the trainer, and by the time we got up, to the uh, locker room. My arm was kind of swollen, stuck at a 45-degree angle. When you felt that pop, was that incredibly painful? It didn't feel good. I, I wouldn't say it was incredibly painful, but it didn't feel good. Like, I had known that I that I'd hurt myself. I knew what I did at that point. And you knew right what it was? You knew you were going to need Tommy John at that point? I had a pretty good idea. I went up to Dr. Kremchak in Cincinnati the next day and took the MRI, and he said that it was. it looked like it was it was a small tear, and they put me on a, a rehab regimen for a month to see how it, it would work out because some guys can pitch with a small tear, some guys can't. And uh, I ended up being able to throw out to 120 feet, no problem, up through flat grounds. But as soon as I got back on the mound, it, it started hurting. And uh, They went in, they did the surgery, and they found out that that small tear was actually a bone chip. And what they had done is they had cut through the ligament and cut it ear to ear. And so I actually had two separate ligaments. It didn't just snap in half. It, it literally sheared from end to end. So tell me about the rehab process after you have the surgery. How long did it take before you felt comfortable throwing again? And how different do you feel like your mechanics were, if at all, after the surgery? It was a little scary. You, you start throwing at four months. So you, you don't pick up a baseball for four months. 
the day after surgery, they're already in stretching your arm to get it, your mobility back in your elbow. But you don't pick up a baseball for four months. Had you ever done that, by the way? Had you ever gone four months in your life without picking up a baseball? No, you know, at that point, I had never gone four weeks without throwing a baseball. So it, it was definitely a, a weird feeling, and it, it's hard. It's a grind. It's a six-day-a-week grind, um, you know, several hours a day working on it. And it's definitely a marathon. You know, picking up that baseball for the first time was a little nerve-wracking because you didn't know exactly what to expect. I felt good. And I went out and I played catch out to, I think, 30 feet that first day, and everything went fine. And from there on out, it went pretty well. Um, I had a big setback at 10 months, so I was pitching in games. And I got in a bit of a jam and tried a little too hard to get out of it. got out of it, but my arm swelled up on me, and, and that cost me about three months. What do you think we actually know at this point about keeping pitchers healthy? We've seen so many injuries this year. Pitchers now are are controlled. Their pitch counts, their innings are controlled at a very young age. But still, we're seeing a record number of injuries. What do we know about keeping pitchers healthy? In my honest opinion, I don't think we know much. I think we know, you know, generally that there there's some good things out there, but there's a lot of debate on how to keep pitchers healthy. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with kids specializing at a young age. You know, you look at a lot of guys that are having surgeries at this point. I mean, I had mine at 26. I didn't wear my slider until I was 19. If you watch the Little League World Series, you're going to see sliders and curveballs by 12-year-olds. And then with the really explosion of travel league baseball at this point, you know, where kids are playing 80, 90 games a year, a lot of kids pitch, and then the next thing, they go play shortstop. They're pitching on Friday. They're pitching on Sunday. They're pitching, and then they're playing catcher the next game. It's a lot of wear and tear on a young pitcher's arm. Um, Myself, I, I think that we probably have a certain number of bullets in our arm to begin with. And the faster we get to that number, the faster we break down. Yeah, and it's different. It, those number of bullets just varies on the pitcher, I guess. There are some people that can pitch for 10 and 15 years and maintain similar velocity as they did when they first came in. And some people just, you know, look at what Strasburg, what happened with him. He was nurtured as much as any pitcher in the history of the game and still needed the surgery, what, a year and a half after he made his debut? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to luck. You know, I put in all the work necessary to stay healthy. I did all my rehab. I, I got stretched every day. And I think a lot of it, you know, pitching similar to golf and everybody kind of has their perfect swing and my mechanics were herky-jerky, and, but that's what made me effective. And, you know, absolutely my mechanics played a part in my arm bone health. But at the same time, you know, I, it, it was just me. You know, some guys with worse mechanics that never have an issue. See guys with great mechanics that can't stay healthy. It's very much you and your body. Did you have coaches or even scouts try and correct your mechanics at any point? Uh, we smoothed some things out, um, especially after Tommy John. Uh, I went from being a full max effort, 105% on every pitch, to probably being like a 95% effort pitcher. And I was able to keep the same velocity. I mean, that, that was a bonus of Tommy John is that I felt like my command got better of the strike zone because of all the extra work, all the extra bullpens you put in. You really learn your, your body and your mechanics. Um, but, you know, that still didn't keep my groin from blowing out in 2012. It, it's, a, it's a weird, you know, balance that you have to create. Do you remember your first game in the majors? Tell me what that day was like for you. Nerves. Lots of nerves. Uh, didn't call it. We were in Milwaukee, and I, I didn't pitch in the first day that I was there. I pitched the second day, and so I, I was pretty nervous. 
you know, I got on the mound, my leg was shaking a little bit, and uh, Prince Fielder, luckily it was Prince Fielder that was up to bat because I had faced him a couple times in the minor leagues, and uh, so that that was a good thing. And I, after that, it was just quick. I threw one pitch. Brian Snyder threw Corey Koski out to try and steal second, and from there. Um, did you get the win? Did you get the win on your one pitch outing? I did. I did. I think it was Snyder that hit the home run. I think Zimmerman went off with a single, and then Snyder hit a home run. What was the jump like going from the minors to the majors? Is that could you prepare for that jump? I mean, there were all these tiers in the minors to essentially ease the transition of becoming a professional. Um, but that jump to the majors still must be intimidating. Absolutely, it's because the the guys at the major league level are the best of the best, and the thing that separates the guys in the major leagues that stay there from the guys that are in the minor leagues are the guys that kind of float up and down um, between the minors and the majors. It's just consistency. Uh, the guys at the major league level, they're very consistent. Day in and day out, they know what they need to do and they perform. For me as a pitcher, I noticed that I could put one, like I would throw a good slider and a guy would swing through it and miss it badly out of the same slider to the next pitch, and he would spit on it, and he'd just take it. And then they wouldn't swing at it the rest of the year back. Uh, they fouled off more pitches that they didn't want to hit, and they waited for you to make a mistake. And when you made that mistake, they didn't miss. We've seen a lot this season. It seems to be heightened this year of the unwritten rules of baseball and pitchers retaliating at hitters for for whatever reason, showing them up or flipping a bat or, or causing some incident. We saw a big thing a few weeks ago with McCutcheon and Goldschmidt both getting hit in their game. Where do you stand as a pitcher about basically intentionally hitting a batter? I, I never hit anybody intentionally. Um, that doesn't mean I wouldn't have. Um, there, there are certain situations where, you know, you're you're going to protect your plate and you're not going to be shown up. I mean, there is respect in the game, and when guys cross that line, you know, they have to be put back in line. Um, or if a team takes out one of your guys as a pitcher, you need to get back and show your hitters that you support them and that you're not going to stand for that. Um, I would never advocate throwing at anybody's head. Never. But if you want to put one in somebody's ribs and you have the right reasons and the right modes, absolutely. You're not trying to injure anybody, but you're trying to protect your teammates. So you feel it, it, do you feel it's your responsibility if someone hits Joey Votto that you would have to hit their star player? No, no, not, not at all. If somebody did it on purpose, then absolutely. But if there are absolute times where guys, you, you get hit all the time. Like I, I hit plenty of guys. I'm, on accident. You know, I never went at anybody on purpose. Um, so, but, you know, if, if there's malicious intent for a guy to get hit on our team, then you, you should protect your players and let that other team know that there will be a repercussion. How easy is it for you to tell when the opposing pitcher is hitting a batter on purpose? You know, so, sometimes it, 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 it can be pretty blatant. You know, most guys don't get hit by curveballs. If you're going to hit somebody on purpose, you're not going to throw a curveball or a slider or a changeup. It, it's normally a fastball that ends up behind them or hits them square in the back. And there, there's a much more deliberate uh, mechanical pitch to that. Um, and usually a guy will stare right at somebody after they do it there to let them know that they did it on purpose. You know, if, if you look back and you see where I accidentally drill guys, I'm usually very upset with myself because I put a runner on base. And then a lot of times, too, certain situations in a game, if it's a one-run game, you want to win more than anything. Like you're not going to put your team in a situation where they could lose to take care of a personal vendetta or a, you know, just some 
ridiculous event that's happened. Two years ago, we saw Clay Buckholtz get some attention for rubbing what turned out to be sunscreen on the ball. And Michael Pineda, I think, got a suspension earlier this year for putting some pine tar on the ball. Um, have you ever put a substance on the ball? And where do you stand with pine tar? Is that cheating or is that just a part of the game? I've never put anything on the ball in the game. Uh, I messed around with pine tar a little bit. I, I didn't like it. I, I actually preferred a perfectly white baseball. I know a lot of guys like a nice rubbed up baseball. I felt like I never got a good rubbed up baseball late in the game. It was always like it was just covered in mud. And I always felt like the pearls had more tack to it. Um, I didn't even use rosin. I, I licked my fingers a lot and wiped it off, and that gave me the tack that I need needed to feel confident that I could deliver a pitch. Um, I guess pine tar could create a better grip, which would allow you to get better spin on a breaking ball, a little more command. I don't really know where I stand on that. I mean, hitters get to use pine tar for a baseball bat to make sure that they can hold on to the bat, which helps them hit. So if it's 110 degrees outside and I'm sweating and can't hold on to a baseball, should you be able to use pine tar? Maybe. But as it stands at this point, it's illegal, so now you're just going to be able to use it. Tell me about the, the dynamic of your relationships with your catchers, especially coming out of the bullpen. Starters, obviously, they go through a lineup uh, two or three times. The catcher is conferencing with them constantly throughout the game. Uh, you're coming in, you might be facing for an inning or even for a batter. Tell me about your relationship with the catcher in those situations. You have to trust your catcher. And the, the guys at the major league level, for the most part, do an excellent job. They do a ton of research. They know every hitter. They know every pitcher. They they know everything going on in the game, and that's why catchers usually make great managers. It's because they they are the captain of the field. They run that game, um, and they can see they have everything in front of them. Um, so, like for instance, with Ryan Hannigan, I knew that Ryan knew hitters way better than I ever could, and so you trust him that when he puts down that sign, that that's going to be the right sign. And then if you decide you want to throw another pitch, you can shake him off, and you can talk talk about it and it, it takes a little bit of time to get to know your catchers but you just put absolute trust in them otherwise you can't make your pitches with a guy on third base major league baseball just named its new commissioner and there's a lot of talk that one of the things that needs to get addressed is the pace of the game uh, some of that talk revolves around actually putting a clock for the pitchers that that makes them throw every 15 seconds the, between pitches whatever that number is how would you feel about that i think that's an absolutely terrible idea awful idea that they want to put that's people that have never been on the major league mound and tried to pitch in front of 55,000 people that are trying to make that rule um there are certain guys that are absolutely slow and they should have to speed up a little bit but to put a basically a shot clock out there in a tight situation that tells me that i have to pitch every 15 seconds i mean i don't think it's i don't think it's possible in every situation to be able to throw a ball in 15 seconds how do you get pitchers to throw faster than without penalty? Yeah, that, that's a good question. You could penalize guys. I mean, abs- you could absolutely at some point come down and say, all right, you know what, you throw a pitch every 35 seconds. That is just not – you could give them warnings, you know, similar to like dress code policies where you give them warnings and you could stop and say, you know what, it's got to be every 25 seconds on average. We're not going to have a shot clock out there. But for the most part, you've got to be faster than you are. If not, they could they could probably start firing. That would have to be negotiated with the union. Do you think the pace of the game is a problem? As a former player, do you watch games and, and think they're slow? Yeah, some games, absolutely. 
there, there are some games that are absolutely that just drag on. I mean, the average Yankees Red Sox game is like over four hours. Um, and some of that has to do with pace of game. Some of that has to do with the intensity of the game, the number of pitching changes made. Uh, you know, they, they talk about how many guys, like how slow we get out of the bullpen as a relief pitcher. They want us out and ready to go in a minute and 20 seconds. I'd like to see some of them run out of the bullpen and not be out of breath if you had to throw eight pitches and run out of the bullpen in a minute and 20 seconds. How many pitches would it take for you to, to get warmed up when you were in the bullpen? I, I could be warmed up in 10 pitches. I want to ask you about some of your teammates and some of the contemporaries that you played with when you were playing. You mentioned Ken Griffey Jr. earlier. Tell me what he was like as a teammate. He was a great teammate. Griffey was absolutely one of my favorite teammates of all time. Yeah, he, he was a good teammate. He was a great guy in the clubhouse. Um, very personable, funny. And then an absolute first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, I, you know, he probably should be a unanimous Hall of Famer. I don't know how he couldn't be. But I really enjoyed playing with him and just, you know, getting to know him. Because, you know, at one point I was going out playing King Griffey Junior Baseball and Super Nintendo, and the next, you know, a couple of years later, I'm actually playing with him on the field. And the absolute highlight of my career. How about Aroldis Chapman as a pitcher? What was it like seeing him, especially when he was a rookie? It was a lot of fun watching him pitch. Um, I remember seeing pitch that was over 105 miles an hour. It just it, it just looked different. I mean, the the amount of talent and the his ability to throw that baseball so hard is just incredible. I wouldn't play catch with him ever. Like no desire to ever play catch with him because he he threw hard from 45 feet, and then I wanted to play catch to 400 feet. I mean, his, his talent was just immense. He's controlled some of his wildness as his, as he's gotten a little older here. But when he first came up, he was wild too. So that's uh, you got a guy throwing over a hundred with little control. That's a dangerous situation. Yeah, I, I'm willing to bet that he got a few outs because guys were very comfortable in the batter's box. But, you know, yeah, that's good for him. How about Joey Votto? Joey Votto, of course, known for being one of the guys that takes a sabermetric approach to things. What was he like as a teammate? Joey's a great teammate as well. I mean, you're going to be hard-pressed to find me uh, a teammate that I didn't really like. Uh, Joey's a great teammate. He's a quiet guy, um, you know, with a good sense of humor. A little different sense of humor, but a good one. Um, not super loud in the clubhouse. You know, he's not a, like a rah-rah cheerleading type leader in the clubhouse. Joey's led by example. He worked hard every day. Uh, he came to play every day. And, you know, a lot of people just don't realize that he, he plays hard, too. Um, you know, unfortunately, this year has been a down year for him uh, physically. And it's because he he puts a lot of pressure on himself to go out there and perform the way that he knows he's capable of. And, you know, like, for instance, this year, he probably shouldn't have come back as quickly as he did from his injury and you know, tried to push it to help his teammates. And, I mean, that's the kind of guy he is. A guy who I don't think you ever faced, but a guy you certainly was around in a presence uh, when you were first breaking in, Barry Bonds. What do you think about Barry Bonds? Another immense talent. You know, there's a lot of controversy surrounding Barry Bonds. Uh, I will say that as a union guy, he never tested positive. I mean, he wasn't convicted of anything. So I, I think there's some difficulty surrounding, you know, that that whole thing. But um, as a baseball player, absolutely one of the best. His hand-eye coordination was incredible. Um, no matter what you, whether you think he used something, didn't use something, um, 
you still have to be able to hit the baseball. And I mean, just an absolutely amazing hitter. Where do you stand on PEDs? Uh, there was a time that, that really preceded your career, you, your professional career, your major league career was after they started testing. And certainly in the minors, when you were in the minors, there was testing there as well. But there was a time where it was where there was no testing and players at that time really seemed to didn't want it either. Do you think that PED users should be in the Hall of Fame? Do you think the suspensions that are in place now are fair? I do think the suspensions now are fair. I, I had an opportunity to help draft those suspensions. I, I do think they're fair. Um, and you know, just with like every other system of, you know, I, I would guess I would say like a court system, you know, once you serve your time, you're innocent, you should be able to report. I do not think they should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, if I, I do believe that if you make that effort to cheat and you get caught, then you don't belong in the Hall of Fame. So I'm, I'm absolutely against PEDs, and uh, we do have the toughest drug testing system in sports and, you know, the most random and we made it even better last year when they reopened the um, bargaining agreement to take a look at it. And um, with HGH, you know, I'm, I'm glad that that's being tested for. A lot of the pushback in testing is the desire to make sure that the tests are accurate as possible. Because what you don't want is someone to test positive because of error on the test side. Because that, that will mark a player for a career, whether he's innocent or not. Um, once you're labeled a PED user, you're labeled for your career. And so, like with HGH, there was a lot of pushback on HGH because we weren't sure that the technology was there to guarantee that that test was going to be 100% accurate 100% of the time. And so, until we were certain that that's what it was going to be, you know, we weren't going to have HGH testing. And then you go into, you know, guys getting needles stuck in them before games. And, um, you know, that's an issue too. I remember. In 2012, they took blood from my arm and they missed badly. And my arm was bruised for 10 days. And every time I threw, my arm just got worse. And I, I can't imagine a guy like Joey Votto, who needs both arms, and this was my right arm, not even my pitching arm. I can't imagine a guy like Joey Votto with a bruised forearm because they missed, you know, badly trying to take an HGH blood sample. I mean, that, you know, you want to talk about losing a guy for 10 days because he can't swing because he keeps breaking up on a blood vein every time he swings. I mean, that would be bad. So at this point in your life, you're 31 years old. Baseball's been a part of your life your entire life. But now you're retired. How do you deal with that that loss of the game? Uh, you stay busy. Uh, you know, fortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, I've been injured quite a bit in my career. So I always had that eye on what I wanted to do afterwards. Um, and last year with my surgery on my shoulder, we decided to move back to Virginia from Texas. I re-enrolled at William & Mary while I was rehabbing. And then once I found out that I had torn my leg in for a second time and decided to retire, it, it just totally put my focus on school and uh, creating a second career for myself. And hopefully that will be in baseball um, somewhere, whether it's a team, MLB, the Players Association. I, I would love to stay in the business of baseball. And I'm working towards that goal. I'm going to be applying for law school here pretty soon. And, uh, for grad school to get my MBA and, you know, just kind of see where God wants me to go. What's the biggest issue you feel like the players need to address in the next CBA? I, I think there's going to be some changes in uh, free agent compensation. Again, I think there were some unintended consequences with um, how we change type A free agency. Uh, I'm sure that'll be looked at. I'm sure the draft will be looked at. Um, you know, I'm sure they're going to look at an international draft and see 
you know, how things are coming along there. I'm sure, you know, the joint drug agreement will be an issue as always. Um, continue to make that better and how we can make that better. Uh, tobacco will be an issue. Uh, so, you know, there's always going to be things that we can do to improve our game. And uh, I'm sure with Rob Manford being named the new commissioner, I'm sure that, you know, labor peace will hopefully continue and that, you know, the game will continue to improve. You've been listening to Bill Bray. Bill is a retired relief pitcher, formerly with the Cincinnati Reds and Washington Nationals. You can give him a follow on Twitter at WPBray. Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it.